All right, shall we get started? Sure. Very good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, if memory serves, we had just about wrapped up chapter 9. Maybe we even did wrap it up. We are in the middle of the seven trumpets. We've just had the sixth trumpet. That you can find in Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. And this is the second of the woes proclaimed by the eagle who flies through the midst of the heavens. The second of three. And this is the second woe that is demonic in nature, afflicting the unbelievers. So even though the imagery is concrete, and, and even though it may have a certain referent in terms of like physical armies or warfare on the earth, the, the, the overwhelming idea here is spiritual affliction and attack. Now, just as we saw in the seven scrolls, between the sixth and the seventh, there was an interlude, uh, a breath of fresh air, a heavenly vision of good news and comfort for us. Again, I mean, my argument would be even the plagues and the afflictions themselves are comforting because we see that they are from God's hand, for God's purposes, limited by God, etc. But good news in the manifest sense, we saw the interlude of the church and the twofold nature of the church on earth and in heaven. That was back in Revelation 7. Now as we have progressed into the second set of sevens, the seven trumpets, between six and seven, again we find an interlude. So you can see that there's symmetry going on. And you can also see, I hope you've been able to see this all the way through, while Revelation is in fact a revelation, an experience that John has, when he goes about penning this revelation, he does so in an extremely organized and sophisticated manner. Truly a literary work of art, a literary masterpiece. Now, to get us back into the theme of this section of Revelation, let's look at chapter 9, verse 20, and we'll be reminded of this theme. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. All right, so the key here is that even after profound physical affliction, profound spiritual affliction, the unbelieving people of the world still do not repent. Which is why even though the skies are on fire and the sun is, we were just talking, I, no, I, I don't know anyone who's gone out and measured, but seems to be at least a third dimmer, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, but, but with all these apocalyptic signs around us, and you have to understand this rightly. I don't, I, don't think there's, I don't think there's any sane Christian who's saying 
this is definitively the end times. We know it. This, you know, this is the beginning of the end of the world. Definitively, we're here stating it. That's not what we mean. But we do mean that these signs are apocalyptic signs. These are the kinds of signs that do, in fact, accompany the end of the world. So whether this is a dress rehearsal or not, and there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of dress rehearsals throughout the history of humanity, this may be more of the same, or it may be the end. Uh, that point doesn't much matter at all, other than keeping us from going Looney Tunes and selling everything we have and sitting out on the cliff with lawn chairs. The point simply being, these are, in fact, apocalyptic signs designed to have us all repent. And what do we see the world doing today? I mean, there's a, clearly a mass spiritual renewal happening, and the churches are just flooded with so many people <laughs> wanting to be baptized that I can hardly, uh, I can hardly take it. And, that's clearly what's going on. No, no. In fact, uh, in fact, what we find at times like these, sadly, is that the church diminishes because judgment, as it were, begins at the house of the Lord. And what we really typically find, historically speaking, I'm not suggesting there might not be exceptions, but what we typically find is rather the church sheds and the church has opportunity to become lean and mean, so to speak. That's frequently what happens in times like these. All right, so if sinful people aren't getting the hint, then, and we know that God is persistent, that he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, and he is persistent, so earthly afflictions and spiritual afflictions. He's not going to stop there. He's got one more thing, and this, strictly speaking, isn't an affliction, though I guess in the eyes of the world it is. And what we're going to see in this interlude is once more the church. The church is God's answer. So just in the interlude between the sixth and seventh seals, we have the church. Here in the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets, we're going to have the church, albeit the imagery is going to be entirely different. And in this context, the message specifically in regard to the church is, that's who I'm sending unto this unrepentant world that they might turn and be forgiven. So that really then uh, brings us up in terms of theme to where we're at as we enter into chapter 10, still awaiting the final trumpet, the third of the three woes. Any questions we have before we launch in then to the new material? Okay, chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Let's stop there. I think it's a little bit of a red herring, so I don't want to go that far on it, but many, given this description, many want to see here an angelic figure of Jesus. Whether this is Jesus in angelic form or whether this is just a created angel, the text simply doesn't say. In favor of seeing this as Jesus in angelic form, which certainly wouldn't be the first time, we've seen this all throughout the Old Testament, uh, you have the imagery here that is so familiar going back to even Revelation chapter uh, 1. You remember the initial son of man. Um, flip back with me if you want and just take a quick look. So chapter 1, starting at verse 12, and he's described as, uh, 
You know, his eyes as a flame of fire, his feet as burnished bronze refined in a furnace, his voice like the roar of many waters, etc. The imagery is analogous. Similarly, um, going just a bit further uh, into, into Revelation, when we, get, when we initially go into the throne room in heaven, this is chapter 4, and you have the one seated on the throne, chapter 4, verse 3, as described as being ensphered, surrounded by uh, this rainbow, all the colors of the spectrum. We, so, in other words, elements of the Son, elements of the Father. And then, in this, and then in this angel, again, you see some of those same things. Wrapped in a cloud, you know, if you think the ascension and if you think the temple, um, a rainbow over his head, certainly reminiscent of the one who sits on the throne and sphered in the rainbow. His face like the sun, that's like the son of man. His legs like pillars of fire, similar, similar to Ezekiel's description of the, of the son of man, of the one seated upon the throne. Um, I just, be that as it may, I'll offer you my own personal opinion. I don't think that this is Christ. I think this is an angel that represents par excellence both the Father and the Son. That's what I think this is. Okay. There are many, many, many pages spent on discussing this inside and out. You can find this in Brighton and in just about any other commentary. So if you're really interested, have at it. That's about all the commentary I'll limit myself to at this point. But um, keep in mind these mighty, majestic, godlike attributes given to this angel. Wrapped in a cloud, a rainbow over his head, his face shining like the sun. I mean, are you, hopefully you're picturing this in your mind's eye or trying to. Legs like pillars of fire. And then look at verse uh, 2. He had a little scroll open in his hand. Now, different than the large scroll we had seen previously sealed. This is a little scroll and it's open. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now that doesn't mean he's standing at the beach. What we glimpse here is the colossal size of this angel. Absolutely colossal. And having his feet over the sea and over the earth is expressive of full dominion, full dominion. So this is an incredible angelic being. And there are many incredible angelic beings in the scriptures. You know, again, I, I try not to get irritated around Christmas with all the little chubby, naked, baby cherubim. Not one time are angels ever described in this way in the scriptures. I mean, who would like us to think that that's what angels are? Particularly those angels that are charged with protecting us and being on our side. I mean, yeah, Satan would love for us to think, oh, yeah, that's all angels are. In the scriptures, angels are far more often described in this kind of manner, where if you actually saw this with your waking eyes, you would fall down in fear, and the angel would say what almost all the biblical angels say, do not be afraid. <laughs> do not be afraid. This is a massive colossal, mighty angel. All right, now, one thing looking forward. Looking forward, we are going to see that 
Satan, the dragon, employs two beasts, and these great beasts afflict uh, and, and wage war against the saints of God. So looking forward, we want to see that even here, this angel with his feet over the sea, where one beast comes from, and his feet over the land, where the other beast comes from, shows that uh, he is fully in control and has full dominion even over these beasts. I doubt that many Christians have this in mind, but certainly many pagan people do, and that is this idea that somehow God and Satan are locked in some sort of uh, tug of war or some sort of arm rest, cosmic arm wrestling match, and they're equally matched, or God is somehow hamstrung by Satan or you know, can only do what he can do given Satan's might. All of this is utterly false, of course, utterly false. God is entirely in control of Satan. There is, there is, I think that this is literally true, as much distance between God and Satan as God and you. Between, as much between God and Satan as God and an amoeba. How so? God is infinitely greater, infinitely greater than any created being. Right? So Satan, the Antichrist, the beasts that come from the sea and the earth, these are all nothing to God. Now, God chooses to work through means, angels, people, this kind of thing. And so we're going to see that transpire. But this, the imagery of this angel should show us in a very comforting, very forceful way, particularly if you're picturing this angel in your mind, that the victory of God is never in question. Not even for a second. Not even for a second. Um, that's looking forward to the beast. Now, if we look backward, if we look backward, what we have seen in the last two trumpets is th these great demonic afflictions, fallen angels tormenting man, and these fallen angels and their armies, I mean, way, way overpowering man. So as if to reassure us in this part of the vision, God reveals this colossal angel standing in the sea and on the earth as if to be like, okay, but as bad as all that is, I've got this. It's not in question. All right, let's find out what else this angel is up to. So, verse 2, he had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Now this also harkens back to the past two trumpets, because in the fifth trumpet, the demonic enemies were described as having teeth like lion's teeth. And in the sixth trumpet, the, the demonic hordes are described as, as riding these horses that have heads like lion's heads. And so here is, here is the heavenly answer, you know, angel to angel, and his voice like the voice of a lion roaring shows his power uh, over, over these other angelic beings that are fallen and afflicting mankind. So again, this is a, a colossal um, and very impressive image the sound of his voice is as a lion roaring. That, too, is similar to the lion of the tribe of Judah. Um, again, sort of fueling the debate of if this is Christ. Um, but again, I, I think 
I think it's sort of as distracting more than helpful. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now this is one of the most intriguing mysteries uh, of, the, of the whole book of, of Revelation. Just fascinating. You can't really go anywhere with it, but it's fascinating. One of the things that's fascinating, okay, you have a set of seven, these seven thunders. One of the things that's fascinating is, do you remember when we went through the seven seals and the opening of the uh, seventh seal uh, led into the first of the trumpets? You remember that move? And so there's a sense here in which Okay, the blowing of the sixth trumpet, you would expect the blowing of the seventh and the opening of, of the, the blowing of the seventh and the opening into the next set of seven. Which may well, if allowed to have written this down, may well have been the seven thunders. It may well have been that we could have had uh, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven thunders, the seven bowls of, uh, you know, the, the hot coals from the incense. Could have been. Who knows? So that's the question here, as, is what, uh, what importance do we place on this? Well, we can't place that much simply because it's a mystery to us. We don't know. They're, they're specifically sealed up. Seal up what the seven thunders have said. There's clearly a revelation there. They're saying something but John is not permitted to write it down. And the angel, this is verse 5, and the, we'll go back and talk about this in a minute. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. I mean, again, your wheels are probably turning in terms of the identity of this angel. You can see evidence going both ways once again in this section. So let me talk, uh, let me allow, allow some of our better commentators here, to talk some about uh, the seven thunders, and perhaps by extension just a bit about this angel and his role. Here is Richard Bauckham. The communication of the content of the scroll to John takes place as the first part of the extended interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet blasts. Okay, so what he's saying there is that these, the, the, what the seven thunders said is in fact revealed to John. But John isn't allowed to pass that on. It should be noted that the markers in chapter 9, verse 12, okay, and that uh, when you go back there, the first woe has passed, behold, two woes are still to come. And if you go forward to 11.13 and look at that, it's actually 11.14 here. It might be a typo. 
you see the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is to come. So as Bauckham's saying, it should be noted that the markers in 9.12 and 11, oh yeah, it is 11.14, he has it right here, associate this interlude firmly with the sixth rather than the seventh trumpet. Why is the scroll given to John at this point near the end of the second series of seven judgments? We noticed in chapter 2 above that all three series of judgments are closely related to the vision of God as sovereign and holy in Revelation 4. They bring God's holy will, will to bear on the evil world. But the judgments up to and including that of the sixth trumpet are strictly limited. They are warning judgments designed to bring humanity to repentance. In chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, immediately before the interlude, it is clearly stated that they do not, in fact, have this effect. Those who survive the judgments do not repent. Judgments alone, it is implied, do not lead to repentance and faith. This is why early in the interlude, a further series of judgments, the seven thunders, is apparently proposed only to be revoked. Okay? So that is, that is then how Bauckham reads this text, is it, is it is likely to proceed, I mean, the normal flow would be to proceed into the seven thunders, which would be the third then of four sets of judgments upon the earth. Right? But what Bauckham thinks happens here is this realization that no one's repenting. And so the seven are sealed up and a new plan is put in place. And namely, that is going to be the ministry of the church. If you glance ahead to the, uh, chapter 11 and just look at the heading, it's the two witnesses. We're going to go to Zechariah. Might do a little work in the commentaries. But the whole point of these two witnesses is this is the church embodied on earth, proclaiming law and gospel, proclaiming salvation to fallen humanity so that fallen humanity may be saved. So this then in effect is what replaces the judgment until the final set of seven where the censor angels pour out their bowls of wrath. And then that really concludes things. That's it. At that point in time, there's sort of a, a, a bit of despair in the, at least in terms of men repenting uh, and there's a heavenly sense of we've done everything we can and the judgments ramp up until their penultimate state right before the return of the Lamb and the ultimate putting away of evil. Okay, so that's one proposal. Uh, it, is, it, is in, um, it is in Brighton where another proposal's made. It's a little happier proposal that, that the, the soundings of these thunders are simply too heavenly and too wonderful and too glorious to be revealed. So, <laughs> there's another take. As I said, it's, it's likely uh, speculative. Now, pardon me for just a little bit longer while we unpack, uh, well, Bauckham unpacks this for us. Unlike the scroll, they, these thunders, are to remain sealed, and John is not to write their contents in his prophecy. In other words, the process of increasingly severe warning judgments is not to be extended any further. Remember how we were, had this ramp-up thing? It was one-fourth of everything when it was the seals opened. Then in the trumpets, it's one-third, right? Um, what would we might maybe expect? 
I don't know, one half? Who knows? Three quarters? What would we expect? Something like that. Bakum continues, It is not that God's patience has run out, but that such judgments do not produce repentance. So the series of judgments affecting a quarter of the earth, 6-8, and the series affecting a third of the earth, uh, chapters 8 and 9, are not, as we might expect, followed by a series affecting half the earth. No doubt the seven thunders would have been such a series. But there is now to be only the final judgment, the seventh trumpet. When the content of the seventh trumpet is spelled out in detail as the seven bowls, they are total, not limited judgments, accomplishing the final annihilation of the unrepentant. Okay, so that's, that's Bauckham's take on it. And while we might quibble with this or that detail or, or with sort of the organizational frame he might have for it, uh, it is nonetheless, I think, a very compelling case for what these, what these thunders are. All right, now not to lose the forest for the trees. The thunders are sealed, but the scroll, the little scroll, is not. The angel swears to God. We see this. Uh, he swears to God uh, in verse 5. Which, by the way, also shows us that swearing or swearing an oath is not inherently evil. When Jesus forbids the swearing of oaths in Matthew, uh, I think it's 5, maybe it's 6, I can't remember. But um, the Sermon on the Mount. We ought to take that as a situational, not an absolute. So here you have an example of a holy angel before God swearing. And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Now, what is the mystery of God? The mystery of God, as we've hinted at before, and as Paul spells out very explicitly, is the salvation of, of the nations. Not universalism, but the fact that God reaches outside of Israel proper and saves many, many from among the other nations. That's the mystery of God. That is, again, what's really hidden in the scroll is that God is going to act cosmically, not tribally. The entire emphasis of the Old Testament is God's tribal action upon the people of Israel. And by extension, those Gentiles that are brought in. But here at the end, the mystery of God is revealed that Christ is not merely the Savior of the Jews and a few Gentiles who happen to come in, but he's the Savior of the world, and salvation is offered and extended to all peoples uh, from all the nations, and all believers from all nations will be saved, and the salvation is cosmic in scope. Again, you can see that when Peter describes Jesus as the Christ and confesses him as the Son of the living God, what does Peter have in mind for the scope of Jesus' work? Not a death that takes away the sin of the world, not a resurrection by which all flesh is raised, not the entrance into the new heavens and the new earth. But that is precisely what Jesus has come to do, and the fullness of that revelation comes about as a mystery revealed in these last times. 
Maybe we already did this once in here, but I'm going to make us do it again. Hop over with, uh, to me with, just to go to 1 Corinthians. You'll see Paul treat this in a very uh, straightforward manner. Let's, uh, in fact, let's look at chapter 2. I'll just take us a little way into chapter 3. So 1 Corinthians 2, this will, uh, we Lutherans from time to time fall into some of our own uh, slogans and tropes and end up not quite seeing the scriptures for what they actually say. This may, uh, may pop some scales from off your eyes. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now this is frequently taken up as Lutherans and sewn onto banners as pride. Look at, how, look at how Paul takes this. It's not that. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in, demonstra- in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. So look back at chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now look at 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. What's his point? You weren't wise. That's why I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Amongst the wise I will proclaim that and more. It's precisely the import, and it'll get clearer as we go. Once more, verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Look, we reveal a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Look at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. This is the favorite verse that gets quoted at just about anyone who tries to teach Revelation or or teach anything about what death is like or what the scriptures say heaven is like or the new heavens and new earth. Instantaneously, this, I I mean, this happened to me more times than I can count. This verse is quoted. Yes, but eye has not seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I'm not going to quibble with the fact that there isn't mystery involved and that we know far less about the thing than there is to know about it. But look exactly what Paul says in the next verse. These things God has revealed to us. 
through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? Like, who knows your deepest thoughts except for you, right? Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Here comes another bugaboo, by the way, that there's no, such, there, there's no levels amongst Christians. Well, we can quibble and argue about the, about the semantics of that, but look what Paul does. Watch what Paul does. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. I, brothers, I, fellow Christians, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. There was more unbeliever in you than believer. As infants in Christ, not as wise to whom I, or not as mature to whom I can teach wisdom, chapter 2, verse 1, but as babes to whom who I must limit myself to preach only Christ and Him crucified. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. And then he goes on to say, I, I planted, Apollos watered, and he goes on to talk about the apostolic ministry and that it's ultimately God that gives the growth. And then he goes into the judgment of works after the foundation is laid that is Christ. We build on that foundation with either wood, hay, and stubble or with gold, silver, and precious stones. And the fire of the last day tests each man's work. And the man who has the foundation that is Christ, but is built with wood, hay, and stubble, he is saved, and yet saved is one who passes through loss. These two chapters are like anti the Lutheran caricature that has grown up in the 20th century and 21st century. These, these chapters just blow about three or four out of, of those caricatures out of the water. Out of the water. So again... Um, Paul is lamenting when he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Why? Because you weren't mature, you were just babes. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom beyond Christ and him crucified, which is self-evident in the text itself, of course, because if he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, 
then he would just simply end the epistle right there. Or maybe spend a chapter on Christ and him crucified and end the epistle there. But he goes on to describe all manner of wisdom. Now, the wisdom that is hidden before the foundation of the world, this is what Paul is talking about, this allusion to the fact that he himself becomes apostle to the Gentiles. And so the other disciples are sent to Israel. He is sent to the Gentiles, to the nations. And it becomes evident then that salvation is for all mankind. These are the deep mysteries of God. This is the mystery hidden from before the foundations of the world that the rulers of this earth did not know. And in the rulers here, we're not talking about the the Jewish rulers. We're talking, as such, we're talking about the pagan rulers. Okay. All right, so that gives us us, um, not only an opportunity to pop some of our, uh, to actually be sola scriptura Lutherans, um, and to pop some of the, the caricatures that have grown up around our eyes off. But it also gives us opportunity to see in a very straightforward way that this mystery hidden from before the foundation of the world is being revealed in the apostolic preaching. All right, so flash back with me then to Revelation and see what this angel is saying. He's going to be saying exactly the same thing. Um, it's, a, it's a long sentence, but just pick up mid-sentence with me in verse 7. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. That's the apostolic preaching going forth into all the world. Which, by the way, you can see how that's a present tense reality, is the apostolic preaching that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, is still going on. The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The prophets knew this in part. You can find that in their writings. All right, verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel. Now this voice from heaven, this could be God or this could be the eighth angel who's um, pouring out the, the wrath from the altar of incense. It's probably God, but it could be either. It doesn't matter. Angels are simply messengers of God anyway. Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Not only does he see this colossal angel, now he has to go approach him. Which this is parallel to what? This is parallel in a much diminished way to the son upon his death and resurrection ascending into heaven and going to the right hand of the one seated upon the throne and taking from him the scroll. What would be the imagery then of John, the apostle, coming and taking from this angel who in so many ways looks like God, coming from the right hand and taking the little little scroll? Jesus alone is worthy to unveil and reveal the plan of God's salvation in whole, and it is now given to the apostles, to John, to preach and proclaim. In effect, as Christ did, so they do on a smaller scale. They become mini-Christs. 
Or as Jesus himself says, as the Father sent me, now I am sending you. And so this is the apostolic commissioning viewed from a heavenly perspective. All right, so John approaches this colossal angel. Verse 9, so I went to the angel, (laughs) I love this, and told him to give me the little scroll. (laughs) I love it. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I don't know if, there's, if there is a better, a better explanation of the office of uh, pastor or the office of apostle given than these lines. Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So there is, um, and we could go back and look at Old Testament references, but it is uh, non, not infrequent occurrence in the apocalyptic genre for the prophets to take the scroll into their mouth now the, and to eat it. The imagery of that is you're taking God's word in written form and putting it into your mouth so that when you open your mouth, what's there? That. Exactly. Um, it's also kind of... Uh, kept for us in one of our collects that we might read, learn, mark, and inwardly digest the Word of God. Do you remember that language? Inwardly digest. To, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We eat and consume that Word of God. The point being that when we open our mouths, there's the Word of God. The same thing is also true, by the way, for the Lord's Supper. The church fathers comment on this from time to time. Um, But the Lord's Supper, you take Christ, his body and his blood, you take Christ into your lips precisely so that as you go out into the world and open your lips, what's there? Christ. Absolutely. I can't remember which of the church fathers. I'd have to go back and look. Might well be Chrysostom, but I'd have to go look. No, I don't think it's him. Um, Describes Christians, this is kind of a C.S. Lewis thing to do, only he predated C.S. Lewis by quite a bit. Um, But he talks about Christians coming back from the Lord's Supper and how, and the terror that we are to, to demons. Because demons see us with the body and blood of Christ upon our lips and they see us as how we would see fire breathing demons, fire breathing dragons. That's how they see us. That's how they see saints with the body and blood of Christ upon our lips going out to proclaim Christ's forgiveness unto others. It's also here where you can see um, St. Peter saying, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Again, we have, we have really gotten, allowed ourselves to get cowed into this corner as if the, we're just simply powerless against the devil and we should be afraid of the devil and that's it or that's our, the dominant way in which we ought to perceive ourselves? No. I don't think that that's what the scriptures teach at all. I think the scriptures say, resist him and he will flee from you. Resist him in exactly the way that Christ resisted him and conquered him. And so the God of peace, namely Jesus, will crush Satan under our feet as well. We're given great uh, dominion and power over the evil spirits. And yet, even then, the words of Christ ring true. Rejoice not in this, that even the evil spirits obey you, but rather that your names are written in the book of life. Okay, so he takes the scroll into his mouth. His stomach is bitter. 
again, you can, you probably, you, I think we all as Christians experience this to one degree or another. Um, there is pain with receiving the word of God. There is suffering, there is tentatio, um, there is agony involved, um, but it is nonetheless sweet as honey. The uh, study note points out the prophetic messages invariably contain law and gospel, threat and promise, judgment and grace. Thus, as John internalizes this word of God, it is both bitter and sweet. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Verse 10. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And there is precisely then the referent and content of the ministry. He is to, John is to go out and prophesy, preach, proclaim about and to many peoples and nations and languages and kings. In other words, the little scroll is the, is the preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus, to use his own language at the end of Luke, proclaimed to all nations. So what is, what is being laid down here, I don't think we have to see it in quite these white and black terms, but in a certain sense here, what is being laid down is the apostolic office, the pastoral office, and with it, the whole testimony of the church. So in answer to um, why it is that the nations aren't repenting when God afflicts them, the answer is God says, I will send my church. That too, the church too, will bear, bear witness to these things. All right, then as we get into chapter uh, 11, we hit the two witnesses. Boy, we've only got five minutes left. I don't know. I don't know. Let's just, let's just look at... Mm. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> I'm sorry. Executive decision here, because I'm just not going to be able to do justice to it. Um, we'll have to end there for today. Let's, we'll go into the two witnesses. Um, we'll start next week by going back to the Old Testament roots of these two witnesses. And again, we're going to recall the themes of, um, in particular, the themes of uh, the ten plagues. So we'll talk about the two witnesses in terms of Moses, and we'll talk about the Sinaitic uh, themes here and how those relate to Moses and also point us to Elijah, how we can think of Moses and Elijah as embodying these two witnesses. Remember where they show up? At the transfiguration of Jesus. And then we'll also, as Zechariah will show us, we'll have these two figures, uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and they will also factor into these two witnesses. We're going to see this Johannine multi-layered approach until we see then that all of this embodies the church on earth preaching and proclaiming God's word. Okay, until next week, the Lord be with you.